G'day, mate. 40 here. And as you may or may not know, doing these kind of live streams, it really creates a whole lot of chafing, which becomes quite uncomfortable. And so that's why I rely on aloe vera. But there's something of an emergency here in Hordy's residence right now, in temporary residence in Tenham Sands. I've just been running through the aloe vera at a kind of off-the-hook rate. And so I, I've been informed that I, I've just been using an excessive amount of this aloe vera jelly. Well, the only reason I use this is because it soothes, it cools, and it relieves the skin. It's nature's super plant, all right? And, and you just build up all sorts of chafing when you're doing a lot of live streams. It's like an incredibly tense experience often. And I, I mean, I'm only human. Yeah, I am the no-fap warrior, right? No, time years, no-fap, all right? I only use this appropriately, right? Under, under not just medical supervision, but only moral supervision. But I'm just running through the aloe vera feeling, you know, a lot of tension. And so I'm just kind of looking for, is there any good Asian massage place in, in Tenham Sands? Well, thank God there is. There's a, a wonderful massage place, you know, right near my, my place of work. And so I can work hard for a few hours, then maybe I, I should pick up an Asian massage. Hello, guys. Try our body massage and let our hands touch every inch of your body. We do whole body massage back and front with oil. That sounds nice. Very relaxing. Be prepared to be nurtured. I don't know about you. I'm prepared to be nurtured. De-stressed. I'm prepared to be de-stressed. And pampered by our lovely staff who will always greet you with an angelic and welcoming smile. Hi, I'm Linda from Taiwan. I'm 30 years old, new from Brisbane. I look small and cute. I have triple D size. Oh, I have a sweet smile and very good massage and good service. Would love to see you lovely customers soon. All right, so I'm trying to figure out what I need. So she offers prostate and lingam massage. Not really up on lingam massage. And yeah, I'm sure this is all under rabbinical supervision. Uh, but how on earth do you massage the prostate? Like, when, when I had a doctor check it, he had to, like, put on some gloves. And then he entered he entered his fingers through a, an aperture in my body, which has, until this point has only been used to, you know, express things, to send things out. So what on earth? You guys have more experience than me on, 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 on a prostate massage. And if you're having troubles with, like, same-sex attraction, right, we are the prayer of warriors. We will... We will unleash a prayer circle to to pray for your recovery from SSA. Okay, 45 minutes, $150. 60 minutes, $180. There's also a lingam massage. So are you guys up on the, uh, the old lingam massage? Because I don't really know much about lingam massage. But, you know, I, I, am, the, I am the type of bloke who's you know, willing to investigate, you know, all those things that are kosher, but lingam massage. So apparently it's a tantric massage. So in tantra, we connect with our partner on a personal level. We also connect with the universal chi 
energy that is our partner's body as an energetic life force. One way to do this is through the lingam massage. Yes, this is a fancy name for a hand job, but it's not just any hand job, guys. It's done with more thoughtfulness, respect, care, and desire to bring selfless pleasure to your partner. So this is spiritual, right? And it's, and it's available here in Tenham Sands. Can't believe it. I was out for a walk last night, 9 p.m., walking around the block, and uh, not a whole heck of a lot going on at Tenham Sands after dark. But this Asian massage parlor was still open. Like it had that neon sign saying open. And apparently for just $120, you can get a 30-minute lingam massage. So apparently it's a tantric sex practice focused on massaging the what? Unlike your average hand job, the lingam massage involves not only massaging and stroking, but also can incorporate more advanced techniques, including the what? The wit? Uh, ah? Oh, so apparently the prostate is known as the sacred spot. I didn't know that. So the lingam massage is about having one orgasm and being done. It's about trying to feel more and more pleasure that will become waves of multiple orgasms throughout the massage. So multiple orgasms aren't just for people with clitorises. So it, lingam is the Sanskrit word for penis and translates as wand of light. But in Tantra philosophy, we approach the lingam from a place of the utmost love and respect. That's nice. So this is, this is sacred sexuality. Like this is a practice that truly honors the penis and those who have them. Right, so this isn't just sex. It also says it's very spiritual. Wow, and this is all available in Tenham Sands. Whew. Wow, the lingering lingam. Apparently, lingam massages satiate mother hunger. Wow, powerful. I can't believe this is, this is all here in Tenham Sands. I mean, Tenham Sands has got everything. Absolutely everything. Wow. Okay. I got my aloe jelly. I just, I just, I'm in flesh and blood here. I just need a minute to calm down. Okay, how do women compete for partners? This is Joyce Benenson, Harvard University professor of evolutionary theory. The girls and the young women, they really want to do well, particularly now where it you know, leads to, to university and um, a higher paying job. Um, it's very important, but it needs to be done Subtly. Why? Quietly. Why does it need to be done subtly? What's the because, dynamic that's driving this desire to be under the surface? Okay, so underlying it all, I would say, is the sense that we are all equals. So if my friend does much better than me on an exam and I find out about okay, it, so underlying, I feel bad. It's like, who, who is she and what am I? And maybe I don't want to be friends with her anymore. And I've done quite a bit of research on that. How do you feel if your friend does better than you? And this is all same sex and um, women or girls, both feel worse about it. And there's a lot of evidence now that's coming out in the business literature and certainly in academic literature. And even in, in um, I find it by middle childhood when I first done it, um, girls don't like somebody who is showing off, who's bragging, who's doing exactly what boys and men like to do. And even if you look at a lot of qualitative studies in young, young children, anybody who's trying to be better than anyone else is really disliked within the female community, whatever age it is. So this showing off is really painful. And of course, we go then right to social media, which is totally new. And it's horrible. And we know that 
girls are much more likely and women to be addicted to social media than boys and men. Boys and men are much more likely to have gaming addictions. So you can argue about which is worse. But what we're talking about now is social behavior. And it's really, really painful to see someone you okay, know doing you. much better than you. Unbelievable. months of mounting pressure to get a true firsthand look at the illegal immigration crisis. It looks like President Biden has relented, confirming his, quote, intention to visit the southern border next week. Bill Malugin is live with the breaking information. This is news, Bill. It's news and a lot of people wondering what took so long, right? Because right? we're now almost two. Okay, that's a relief. Joe Biden's going to visit the border, guys. Everything's going to be so much better now. We're really going to get a handle on illegal immigration because uh, Joe Biden is going to visit the border. Also, it looks like uh, there will be some sort of compromise between Kevin McCarthy and those 20 or so right-wing Republicans who previously have not been accepting him as speaker. We'll keep an eye on any, any breaking news there, but let's get back to the Biden story. One month ago, when President Biden declined to visit the border while in Arizona, saying at the time there were more important things going on. Why go to a border state and not visit the border? And the White House previously said last summer that a, that a visit to the border wouldn't be constructive. Why doesn't he want to go? I don't think it's an issue of wanting to go. I think it's an issue of what's most constructive to address what we see as a challenging situation at the border and a broken immigration system. And now that Biden says he will visit the border, depending on where he goes, he might get a firsthand look at the impact his policies are having down there. If he goes to El Paso... He might see hundreds of migrants sleeping on city streets as Border Patrol there has been absolutely inundated with record illegal crossings in the city in recent weeks. The city had to declare a state of emergency as a result. And Trace, speaking of El Paso, security cameras apparently caught a Mexican fugitive trying to cross illegally into El Paso following that big uh, prison break in Ciudad Juarez. That's the Mexican city directly across from El Paso. If you didn't hear, gunmen attacked the prison on New Year's Day, leaving 19 people dead, including 10 guards. Mm -hmm. 27 prisoners escaped, including the leader of a major Mexican gang, the Mexicals, and several of his top lieutenants, Nobody knows where they are tonight. Cartels are having a field day with this. Bill, thank you. Thanks. So the Fox News at Night Common Sense Department wonders how exactly President Biden got from having more important things to do to finally agreeing to visit the border. The administration has been downplaying or, quite frankly, being dishonest about the border crisis for two years. Not only was the border crisis dismissed, it was ridiculed, as you might recall, as misinformation. Now, suddenly... It's a priority. So what changed? Was it the astonishing number of almost 2.4 million migrant encounters in fiscal 2022? Was it the 600,000 gotaways, which, by the way, is a massive undercount when you realize that most migrants now get away? Or maybe the president accidentally flipped on Fox News and Bill Malugin and found out that in November, heroin seizures were up 52 percent, fentanyl seizures up 53 percent. The Biden visit is interesting because when Republicans visit the border, the administration calls it a political stunt. So what is it now? The real deal? When he was asked what he hopes to see at the border, the president joked, quote, peace and security. Funny, right? Maybe not so much for the people who live in border states and have been asking about peace and security for two years. 
Meantime, breaking tonight, doctors are now seeing small but encouraging signs of improvement in DeMar Hamlin's condition. His uncle says the 24-year-old is now receiving 50% oxygen after initially receiving 100%. Hamlin, still in the ICU, sedated and on a ventilator. Doctors have flipped him onto his stomach to relieve pressure on his lungs. Hamlin's family and friends are feeling positive about the direction things are headed. There's not clarity at this point in terms of how long things are going to be, how long it's going to take, where things are going to go. So for the family, it's just a matter of seeing more positive signs and hopefully keep building on that. In his first news conference since Monday night, Bengals head coach Zach Taylor shared a bit of his interactions on the field with Bills head coach Sean McDermott and how the teams decided to stop playing the game. When I got over there, uh, the first thing he said was, I need to be at the hospital tomorrow, and I shouldn't be coaching this game. And at that point, um, I think everybody, everything trended in the, in the direction it needed to trend, and the right decisions were made there. The NFL said that while Hamlin has not played the three seasons required to be eligible for benefits like pension, life insurance, and disability, the league will make sure that he has everything he needs to live a complete life going forward. Well, quadruple murder suspect Brian Koberger is back in Idaho tonight after waiving extradition on Tuesday. And now we're learning the FBI was on his trail for weeks. Dan Springer is in Moscow, Idaho. It's after a long day of air travel, courtesy of the Pennsylvania State Police, Brian Koberger is back in Idaho to face four counts of first-degree murder. Koberger waived extradition at a hearing in Pennsylvania yesterday, and this evening he touched down at the Pullman Airport. He was immediately put into a vehicle for a short 10-minute drive to the Latah County Jail in Moscow, Idaho, a small college town that was shocked by the quadruple murder of college students, the worst crime the city has ever seen. Once at the jail, Koberger was taken inside for booking. And because he must be arraigned within 24 hours of booking, he'll almost certainly make his first court appearance tomorrow. And we're learning tonight that this was in the works for some time. A law enforcement source tells me there was surveillance of Koberger at least two weeks before he was arrested. I'm told the two traffic stops made by Indiana police December 15th were directed by an FBI surveillance team that was tracking him all the way from Washington State. They were still building their case and wanted video images of Koberger's hands. He was finally arrested December 30th at 1.30 a.m. at his parents' house by a Pennsylvania State Police SWAT team. And when they went in, they stormed the place. There were multiple windows that were broken, I believe, to, to gain access, as well as multiple doors. I think the uh, video of the, the house after the fact confirms that. And that would all be part of the tactical plan based on the floor plan of the house, etc., and what the uh, CERT operators would do to serve those warrants. The Latah County Jail has 37 jail cells, and one is now occupied by Brian Koberger, who will likely face a judge tomorrow. Trace? Dan Springer in Moscow tonight. Dan, thank you. And breaking tonight, three adults and five minors were found dead inside an Enoch, Utah home. Police said all eight individuals were found with gunshot wounds. They do not believe any suspects are at large. We'll bring you more as we get it. Well, Pope Francis hosted a packed general audience in the Vatican on Wednesday as thousands of people paid tribute to Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI on the final day. Okay, we'll keep an eye on the news, and if anything breaks that's important, we'll cross to, to the news. But I, I want to talk about this documentary, Died Suddenly. It's been dominating Twitter over, over the past couple of months. Like, what the hell is this? You've heard the phrase, Died Suddenly? 
right? It's a pretty big deal online. It was streamed on Rumble. It was available on Twitter. So David Gorski, he is a surgeon and a prolific writer. He's got a review here. Died suddenly, he caused it a tsunami of anti-vax misinformation and conspiracy theories. Everything old is new again when it comes to anti-vax tropes. Yeah, the same anti-COVID vaccine tropes that are popular over the past three years. These, these same anti-vaccine tropes have been used by the whole anti-vaccine movement for the past plus uh, last 30 years. So Stu Peters' anti-vax pseudo-documentary died suddenly, resurrects the old anti-vax conspiracy that vaccines kill, the plan being to cause depopulation that will allow global elites to control the world. Dr. David Gorski has watched the whole movie so that you don't have to. So I didn't really know anything about died suddenly until I started reading this article. David Gorski's got a very impressive track record, so you can look him up online. So he published this December 5. Two weeks ago, COVID-19 conspiracy theorist Stu Peters released an anti-vaccine pseudo-documentary on Rumble titled Died Suddenly. Central premise of the film is the old anti-vaccine claim that vaccines are a tool to promote global depopulation. The film's main narrative being that COVID-19 vaccines have, over the last two years, caused huge numbers of otherwise young and healthy people to die suddenly from massive clotting caused by the spike protein produced by mRNA vaccines. Key to supporting this narrative are several embalmers featured in the film, most prominently Richard Hirschman, who claimed that they are seeing more and more different clots of a highly unusual nature in the recently deceased than ever before, a claim bolstered by a renegade pathologist named Ryan Cole. And so Ryan claims that vaccines are causing severe clotting and cancer. And David Gorski says, I'm pretty sure at times that the clots featured in the film were post-mortem clots and nothing unusual. I didn't have the expertise to be absolutely sure. So the last two weeks, I've wanted to follow up on this. So enter Benjamin Schmidt, a licensed funeral director and embalmer who had also watched the film. He emailed me about it. He informed me he had watched the parts of the movie featuring clots being removed from the recently deceased. He was amazed that any embalmer would portray them as anything other than common and normal post-mortem clots that an embalmer entirely expects to see when preparing a body. So what about the rest of the film? So depopulation by vaccines. So in the age of the COVID pandemic, everything old is new again with respect to anti-vaccine disinformation. Most recent example is the claim that Thanks to COVID-19 vaccines, huge numbers of people have died suddenly as the vaccines are designed to result in depopulation, which uh, the global elites apparently want for reasons never made coherent. So this particular conspiracy theory that's trending now about COVID-19 vaccines is an echo, a rehash of old anti-vax conspiracy theories. The problem is that most people who haven't been paying attention in years past don't realize this. So we've now got a new book on this, Cause Unknown, the Epidemic of Sudden Deaths in 2021-2022. It's written by Ed Dowd, former Wall Street analyst. Right? I mean, that's who you should believe when he does amateur epidemiology, right? So he's supposedly going to visit the epidemic of sudden deaths in America. Throughout his stock-picking career, he used patent recognition to get ahead of his peers. Gee. So what changed in 2021? What possibly could have changed in 2021, aside from the amplification of this guy's confirmation of bias? 
and uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. and his anti-vax group Children's Health Defense were also involved in writing this book. So perhaps when you want to analyze complex epidemiological data, maybe your first book pick will be a stock portfolio manager who thinks that patent recognition in picking stocks translates to anything other than being misled in epidemiology. So the same crowd is claiming that uh, vaccinations have killed, caused a wave of sudden infant death syndrome, that HPV vaccines were killing girls and young women. All right, there, there's a film called Sacrificial Virgins about this that blames this uh, anti-HPV vaccine for killing young women. And there's a claim that Bill Gates wants to wants to use these young women for for some weird purpose. Uh, John Rappaport first made the depopulation claim over a decade ago, linking it with germ denial theory. Then we've also got depopulation taking the claim that vaccines are causing infertility in women, premature ovarian insufficiency. All right, so these are all part of a depopulation agenda that the global elites have a uh, mass death, Right, causing infertility. Uh, Mike Adams, before the pandemic, claimed that vaccines were bioweapons designed to depopulate the planet so that the global elites and aliens, space aliens, could rule. Then this bloke, Mike Adams, renamed his vaccine Holocaust as the Oblivion Agenda. So died suddenly very much approaches Mike Adams' territory. The one thing it lacks, however, is aliens orchestrating the carnage. Died suddenly? Well, more like fainted suddenly. And David Gorski says, Showing how Twitter has changed for the worst since Elon Musk took it over, filmmakers were allowed to post the entire Owl Plus video directly onto Twitter. Oh my God, this is awful that people get to you know, see a documentary or a pseudo-documentary because we all know that people shouldn't be allowed to reach these kind of conclusions on their own. No. People should not get access to this kind of information. That's a shanda. That's a that's a horror show. You can't have people making up their own minds about stories. No way. All right, what's going on here in the news? And off. The suspect is now in custody. Dallas. As mask mandates and advisories make a comeback around the country, so are fears of an ongoing forever pandemic and COVID cases coming out of China are at astounding highs. With us now, board-certified medical doctor, Human Hamadi. Dr. Hamadi, it's Hamadi, great to see you as always. I'm fascinated by this whole thing now. The WHO, and I want to put this up on the screen, is now criticizing China, saying, quote, we believe that the current numbers being published from China underrepresent the true impact of the disease in terms of hospital admissions, in terms of ICU admissions, and particularly in terms of death. Are you concerned about this rising? One, are you surprised at the WHO going going after China, and two, are you concerned about China's rising infection rate? Well, first, the World Health Organization has consistently supported China, helped them cover up the, the COVID case numbers at the beginning of the pandemic, mm -hmm. never really held them accountable for investigating the Wuhan lab leak, whether it happened or not, and, and where really the origins of the virus were. Now, finally, after so many years, three years into this, they're actually trying to hold China accountable. Why? 
Well, the numbers coming out of China are outlandish. When yep. you look at them, they're saying 20, 30 people dead. That's impossible. It's physically impossible for a, a country of that size with so many people right. and now lifting all the restrictions that they had to try to contain COVID. It's clear that if they want to retain even an ounce of credibility, the World Health Organization yeah. has to pressure China. Are those cases concerning? Absolutely. But that said, these are of a variant that has been circulating in the rest of the world for a long time. And so I think there's a lot of immunity built already at this point. You're talking about numbers in China. Bloomberg back in December said the following here. China is likely seeing one million COVID cases, 5,000 deaths a day going on to say China has largely shut down its vast network of mass testing booths and scrapped efforts to include every single infection in the daily tally, leaving residents to rely on rapid tests with no obligation to report the results. I mean, from zero COVID in China to kind of this uncontrollable surge. Well, there was a rebellion happening, right? right? People in China were upset. They were locked inside their apartment buildings. People died when, when buildings caught on fire because they wouldn't let them out. Uh, at some point, they knew that their regime was going to collapse if they didn't do something. Yep. And so they had to switch to the other way. Plus, their economy was going to collapse, right? Their factories were shut down. Uh, the economy was halted So worldwide as a result of that. So something had to change, and they realized that, unfortunately, three years too late. Yeah, I want to move on to this topic here because this involves kids and it just it really kind of just drives you crazy. It just shows that marijuana is everywhere. Put this up on the screen, the rise in recreational cannabis among kids. In 2017, there were uh, 207 cases, right? This is cases per year among children under six. In 2021, 3,054. That is a 1,300% increase. That's from the National Poison Data Systems. I want to get to Jonathan Sari, get a quick update on this problem with these edibles, and we'll get back to Dr. Hamadi. They come in the form of gummies, cookies, and other treats, edible cannabis products intended for adults, but researchers say increasing numbers of young children are eating them by accident. According to a new study published in the journal Pediatrics, as the number of states allowing recreational cannabis more than doubled over the past five years, exposure cases involving children younger than six jumped from 207 in 2017 to 3,054 in 2021, an increase of more than 1,300 it is everywhere, Dr. Hamadi. It really is. Everywhere you go, every city you walk in, big city, it smells like marijuana. And now we see it's affecting the younger people in the country. Are you surprised? Absolutely not. You know, parents are buying these edible marijuana gummies thinking they're safe. When you're a little baby, when you're two-year-old, one-year-old, six-year-old, and you see a little gummy standing there, what do you do? You grab it and you put it in your mouth. It's natural for kids to do that. These manufacturers are making them in a way that is attractive to kids. Here's the problem. One of those gummies is enough to get a big adult who's 200 pounds high. Then you take a kid yeah. who's 10 pounds, 20 pounds, 25 pounds. All of a sudden, it's like they're taking 10 gummies when they take one. Imagine they take five or 10. They overdose in such a horrible way that you have large numbers of them ending up in the ICU. Many have been intubated. And when you see that rise like that, there's no end in sight. I think parents really need to be held accountable for this, yeah. right? Ultimately, they're in charge. And I, well, I've got you. I know we've got a little bit of time here. Uh, Damar Hamlin, is it too soon? Do we have too little information to really kind of tell what his future prospects are, what his, what his long-term um, diagnosis might be? Yeah, I think it's, it's extremely early. And I think, it's, it, frankly, it's a little disrespectful to his family and his team members who were in a state of shock and grief yeah. over what's happened for us, for anyone, to really try to speculate, to associate it to vaccines or anything else. So he's still... 
prone, lying on his stomach. He's you know, still intubated. Very controlled because what are they focused on? Keeping him alive and healthy. And that's a lot of work. I think for us to go and try to speculate at this point without any information, it's only going to cause psychological harm to all the people who right now really should be focused on praying for his health and, and doing everything they can to support yeah. one another and really uh, hope that he pulls through. It's a good. Okay, back to David Gorski here with his review of this new pseudo-documentary died suddenly. Of course, the documentary is on Rumble for those who wish to subject themselves to it. And uh, perhaps the best retort of the movie was this. If you see died suddenly trending, it's because some conspiracy nuts have put together a movie about how the COVID vaccine is the correlative cause of all post-vaccination deaths. At this point, I expect the COVID vaccine to be accused of shooting JFK and cancelling Firefly. So this movie has gone viral, several million shares on social media platforms, and it's uh, it's worth investigating this movie in detail because there's absolutely nothing new here for anti-vaxxers. So one, the idea that vaccines are deadly to the point of causing a new holocaust or global depopulation, that is a long-standing anti-vaccine conspiracy theory. The only people who should be surprised that it's been so effectively repurposed to produce a film like that suddenly are those who weren't paying attention in the first place to the anti-vaccine movement. So, Stu Peters, who the heck is this guy? He's a radio host, a podcaster who runs the Stu Peters Network, a network of conspiracy blogs that promote conspiracy theories about COVID-19, vaccines, public health, politics, religion, and just about everything else. The conspiracy theory about COVID-19 vaccines supposedly causing fatal blood clots features prominently in this documentary. Unfortunately, there's just uh, no, no evidence for it. So the trailer for the anti-vaccine documentary died suddenly. Right? Shows video of Florida Gators basketball star Keontae Johnson collapsing on the court. Right? He collapsed at a game on December 12, 2020, before vaccines were even available, and he didn't die. Okay, another shot in this documentary is a woman from Argentina passing out and falling into a moving train. She fainted due to low blood pressure from not eating all day, and she survived without any major injuries. She didn't die suddenly. Another shot in this documentary shows a royal guard fainting, which is a common occurrence because they have to stand still for large periods of time. And, of course, he was fine. He didn't die suddenly. Another shot shows comedian Heather McDonald fainting on stage, which she believed was from lack of eating and drinking that day. She completely survived. She didn't die suddenly. So it's like an old vaccine technique. Just blame sudden deaths on vaccines. Even if there was no sudden death or if the collapse happened prior to the availability of vaccines, just keep throwing this junk up there, even if there's no good evidence of correlation or causation. So read the, read the whole David Gorski review at sciencebasedmedicine.org. Okay, meanwhile, back to Joyce Benenson. How do women compete for partners? Painful. And I believe that's because on top of um, my safe, solitary, subtle tactics, right? Um, there is this ethos within human females of everybody needing to be the same, everybody needing to be equal. And it's very, very important. Now, boys and men 
their whole um, shtick, as far as I can tell, is, no, I'm better than you. And it may be in three-year-olds, I'm better at jumping in the air, or I'm better at running, or I'm better at making a paper airplane, or I'm better at whatever. It can be anything. It can be the silliest thing. But what's nice about the way they do it is a lot of times everybody gets to be better at something, right? Everybody who's a member of the group. And I, I see this and I sort of admire it in some way because it's, yeah, okay, I'm not that good at making paper airplanes, but hey, I can jump higher than you. And, you know, and so everybody has their thing. And that that. So I grew up a Seventh-day Adventist and Seventh-day Adventists really hate competition. Like it was strongly, strongly frowned upon. A Seventh-day Adventist church is a very female-dominated church. It, it kind of has an ethos all around nurturing and healing. And so I didn't get to go to school with my best friend. They separated us right, when I was age eight because they thought we were too competitive. And because they did absolutely everything they could to crush competition, I felt no you know, masculine desire to excel or to show that I was better than anyone else. So I basically, you know, wasted much of my elementary and high school education because I just didn't have any motivation to excel because I need competition to excel. I think most blokes need competition to excel. Don't many people die suddenly? Yeah, <laughs> I think uh, probably most people die suddenly. Yeah, I guess my, my teachers detected toxic, my toxic masculinity very early. Okay, kind of shocking story here from the United Kingdom. Why has there been no reckoning over the Rotterdam, Rotterdam, Rotterdam rape gangs? So Maruf Hussain is a former Labour Party politician. He was forced to resign from his cabinet position on the Rotterdam Council in 2015 after a report named him as one of the figures who had suppressed discussion of these Pakistani grooming gangs operating in Rotterdam. And despite his disgrace, he has succeeded in reinventing himself as an anti-Islamophobia activist. He's working with groups such as Tell Mama and Faith Matters. And in October 2020, he was appointed as the National Health Service Health Education England Regional Diversity and Inclusion Manager. Right, He's the national lead in England for regional diversity and inclusion. This is the guy who did all he could to suppress investigation and prosecution of these Pakistani rape gangs in Rotterdam. Dominic Beck, Labour, Labour's parliamentary candidate for this area, he also served on the Rotterdam Council Cabinet alongside Hussein, was also forced to resign because both of these blokes did absolutely everything they can to cover up these Pakistani rape gangs. The number of victims in Rotterdam, you know, dwarfs the number of victims abused by Jimmy Savile, right? We're talking about tens of thousands of victims of these Rotterdam rape gangs. Now, how, how are these two guys you know, failing upward? And why, you know, didn't feminists jump to the defense of all these girls who were raped by these Pakistani rape gangs? I guess people really, really, really don't want to appear racist. So one Manchester police constable writes, the people at the top perceive the ethnicity of these Pakistani offenders and the low status of poor white girls as a toxic mix. So most of those in positions of power in the United Kingdom, including many feminists, didn't really care about the poor white girls who are getting raped. They cared far more about their own reputations of not coming across as racist. 
So we have dozens of towns and cities targeted by these Pakistani rape gangs. Only one of these has there been any kind of investigation. And that town made a conservative estimate in 2015 of 1,400 girls were sexually exploited. 209 people there have been arrested, 20 convicted. So Britain's Prime Minister Rishi Sunak promises as Prime Minister he will hunt down grooming gangs. But uh, no, no, absolutely no evidence for this. Right? The people who were protecting the groomer gangs, the groomer protectors, they're just failing upwards in the United Kingdom. This type of thing can lead to men shaving their heads, says the chat. Yeah, because they are white girls and the, the rapists of Pakistani, those in power, couldn't afraid to be seen as uh, siding with the raped white girls. That uh, side with the, with the cover-up. Okay, uh, Stephen Turner, who's been a guest on this show twice, I often referenced his books. Well, he's published a memoir, Mad Hazard, A Life in Social Theory. And uh, there's a review out that apparently Stephen Turner's suffering from stage four breast cancer. And one of the issues that have consumed Stephen Turner's professional career has been the statistical turn in sociology, which kind of exemplifies physics envy as a way to claim rigor and the training of graduate students, the presentation of data for public policy. So the elite professors warn correctly, it was impossible to get into the top journals, therefore to get and keep a good job without high-level statistical analysis. So Stephen Turner's memoir talks about the losing of many of his illusions. His first illusion that he lost was that sociology was an important discipline, that the internal issues and conflicts within sociology were worth fighting over, that one could actually influence the discipline from below. The big gun he brings to the fight, his leverage on sociology is the philosophy of science, because sociologists, especially those in power, pretend to believe that sociology was a science. This pretense left them open to arguments about the nature of science. That made the illusions so fun to prick. So this uh, pretense that sociology is a bony, feedy science is accompanied by another illusion, the illusion that theory matters. So sociology may not have had any real theories in the sense of physics, but it certainly had a paradigm. So this is what you see in the social sciences, which have so much envy of the scientific rigor of the natural sciences. They come up with paradigms which are their substitute for the theories of physics and the natural sciences, and paradigms display statistics as the markers of scientific legitimacy in the social sciences. And that's how you get the professional credibility and the funding opportunities by coming out with paradigms and getting people to buy into them. Uh, Stephen Turner realized you cannot invoke logic to people who don't understand logic. Because people who understood logic wouldn't have said the things that one is trying to correct. So there is never an occasion in which it is possible to correct someone by appeal to logic. This was to approve the Achilles heel of all my subsequent attempts to write on these topics. So Stephen Turner pivots from the liberal left politics that he grew up with to the right. 
He uh, largely grew up in Chicago and uh, experienced, you know, brutal racial beatdowns from many Chicago area black youths. So he developed quite a disdain for the elites. My instinct, he says, was to find ways to constrain elite power, but to grant that the rule of the few was a given in politics and in organizations. The perennial political problem is to control the few. Progressivism is just a moralistic mask for this power. It's not a corrective. It's the means by which progress was supposed to be achieved, concentrating this power and making it even more remote from the people. So Stephen Turner, in his younger days, struggled with coming up with a big theory, but he did have an aha moment, pointed out that trust comes from a kind of inference from the parts of the persona of the expert that people could trust to the parts that they could not understand. So once you trust the podcaster, the live streamer, the academic, all right, then you extend that trust to those parts of his oeuvre that you cannot understand. So Stephen Turner is a philosopher of the social sciences. He liked to understand thinkers in terms of the problems they understood themselves to be solving, and this required understanding who they were responding to and why. So, yeah, that's that's important. So why was something written? For whom was it written? Who was writing this? What do they hope to achieve? What are in their personal interests? What is the ideology of this piece of writing? So he's curious about what produced so much uniformity among our elites. So it's not the cognitive conditions of action and thought that produce this uniformity, but the uniformities of action and training and actions in common with other elites that produce the uniformity. Stephen Turner had this advice for young academics. One is better off dealing with the dead because the dead don't change their minds. So if you're dealing, writing about the living, they're constantly changing their minds. So here's some highlights from Stephen Turner's 2022 memoir. Talks about the bookshelves in his father's office. And there was a copy of Saul Alinsky's book, uh, Reveille for Radicals, right? Marching Plan for Radicals. And there's a dust jacket quoting a newspaper description of Saul Alinsky as a hard-boiled sociologist and criminologist who refuses to pull punches when he believes the welfare of the people with whom he works is being jeopardized. So Stephen Turner was in his mid-60s when he learned that this handbook for radicals by Saul Alinsky, the reports he published on gangs, always omitted the gang rapes that the gangs executed, and his accounts of the rehabilitation of a robber failed to explain that the robber eventually returned back to crime. And uh, Stephen Turner shares a joke of the 1960s defined integration as the period between the first black moving in and the last black moving out. He says, my life as an adolescent in Chicago was lived under the constant threat of racial violence. And the point of this racial violence was not to prove one's individual superiority, but to humiliate your target. Stephen Turner said, I really told my father about these beatings. He was the recipient of many beatings. My father's response to them would be to blame me to say I wasn't streetwise. One white kid refused to get off the sidewalk when a number of black youths were walking from the other direction. For his defiance, they killed him. 
just uh, just a few excerpts. I want to read more here from this excellent uh, memoir by Stephen Turner. So, isn't this a good joke of the 1960s? Integration is the period between the first black moving into the neighborhood, the last white moving out. He says, this is pretty accurate because my father's business was in the ghetto. I was a daily participant and observer of the ghetto. My own response to integration was not racialized, so almost all his friends were black until about age 14. My parents, so he came from a mainstream Protestant upbringing. My parents were resolutely open to black integration, to the black presence. They considered staying in Chicago to be their Christian duty, and many Jews felt the same way. Their, their kids, they would idealistically send them to public school where they would just be beaten in, beaten up day in, day out. But hey, it's a Jewish duty. So who's that writer? Josh Allen Friedman. He, he talks about this. His parents were very pro-integration, so as a result, their kids just had the snot beaten out of them at school. So when integration began, uh, Stephen Turner had his tricycle stolen and his safe world began to narrow. So the attitude of many of the new residents in this newly integrated community resembled those described by Charles Johnson in his 1934 book, Shadow of the Plantation. So the newcomer's attitude toward property reflected the idea that if one could take something, one was entitled to it. So I want to read a few more highlights from this Stephen Turner memoir. But first, how do women compete for partners? Joyce Benenson, Harvard professor of evolutionary theory. That's sort of kind of nice because you can get better and better at your thing and you can brag about your thing knowing full well you're not maybe so good at something else versus the girls. It's really looked askance upon, you know, girls look very upset when somebody else is doing better. It's not nice. And so what you have to do then is hide your achievement make it solitary. And there's books on this, which I find fascinating, qualitative books where a girl or a woman will say, I don't know how I got to be the way I am. It's nothing about me. It's just luck. I happen to, you know, do well at my dance and I'm a top dancer, or I look this beautiful, or I, you know, did got a hundred percent on this exam and I don't know how it is. And, you know, it's just mostly it's luck and, and that's the way it is. And I don't really want to talk about it anymore. And that's how it ends up, you know, because it's not something that other girls and women who aren't at the top. Okay. Some more highlights from this excellent Stephen Turner memoir. So he talks about the newly integrated neighborhood he grew up in. Amazingly, there was a massive upsurge in crime. My first barber was murdered in his shop. As a felon, he was not allowed to have a gun, but he kept a bullwhip that he thought would protect him. It didn't. My first dentist was also murdered in his second floor office, presumably by someone looking for drugs. My next barber. And uh, just uh, the neighborhood just fell apart as the, the whites fled, but his parents wouldn't. Stephen Turner grew up the smallest person in his class, so he was often called upon to be beaten up. He was at the bottom of the pecking order.
So I was one of the few Protestants in the neighborhood, and I shifted back and forth between the Jewish and the Catholic groups. The two groups had nothing to do with each other. The Catholics gradually moved out of the community. The Jews followed. Integration had begun. My high school years were not pleasant. Yeah, getting beaten up regularly, having your life threatened, and being absolutely scared to death by the massive increase in, in crime doesn't sound particularly pleasant. My life as an adolescent was lived under the constant threat of racial violence. The neighborhood was quickly becoming black and dangerous. The violence was of a different kind. It wasn't any more just about humiliation. It was much, well, it wasn't just about showing your individual superiority. The purpose now of the violence is to humiliate your target. You got to show up to your peers by beating up a white kid. Nate McCollum, in his 1995 memoir, Makes You Want to Holler, describes with pride his pastime of chasing down vulnerable white kids and beating them. So Nate McCollum is you know, a celebrated black writer, and uh, he had a lot of pride about this pastime of chasing down vulnerable white kids and beating them. Stephen Turner says, I experienced this many times, being followed, being confronted, and being beaten. No one did anything about it. No one expected anything different. The police didn't care. There's a good book on the process of integration as it affected the neighborhood on the other side of Stony Island. It's by Louis Rosen. The neighborhood was Jewish. It had a charismatic rabbi who was a convicted, convinced integrationist. He wanted his congregation to stay put, welcome the new black residents. After his congregants, some of whom owned shops on 87th Street in Chicago, were robbed and threatened, sometimes with the connivance of the blacks they'd been encouraged to employ, the rabbi gave up and moved on. The author, Louis Rosen, went back and interviewed the blacks who moved in. They wanted to live in a better neighborhood. They found it. As one of Louis Rosen's black respondents asked, why did they leave? This is a nice neighborhood. The reason was crystal clear. After having their bicycles stolen, their kids threatened, guns pulled on them, they had enough. So after enough people got threatened with guns, they decided that sticking it out, the name of integration, wasn't worth their life. So one, one guy in Stephen Turner's neighborhood was the proprietor of We Folks Toy Store, which was a shop frequented by Muhammad Ali. He was murdered in front of his wife by a Blackstone Ranger, a black gang, raising bail money for their gang leader killer got off with a light sentence. Now what is remarkable to me, Stephen Turner recalls, it's how calmly this racial transformation took place. People just reached their limits and silently left. There's a movement to prevent panic selling. People put signs on their home saying, not for sale, this is our home. But they too reached their limits and they left. The for sale sign replaced the not for sale sign. No one thought the police could anything do anything about the endemic crime. It was rude to point out the obvious. The process was already long advanced when Martin Luther King came into town and demanded housing opportunities for blacks, marched in white neighborhoods. The result of this effort was simple, white flight, and segregated neighborhoods. 
there's a big difference in this Louis Rosen book doing the way whites and blacks viewed integration. For whites, it was a value commitment. For the blacks, it was a matter of indifference. For them, having whites there was not a goal. Instead, by boycotting them or only patronizing black businesses, they sent the message that they wanted them out. Also, it was a matter of crime tolerance. For the whites, killings were unacceptable, as was the violence, which was disproportionately directed at them. For the blacks, it was a matter of comparison. Things were better than the neighborhoods they moved from. So Stephen Turner had to adjust to this reality of the constant threat of violence. There was no hiding from it. It entered into every calculation of what I did. So radicals trained by Saul Alinsky were able to shake down large sums of money from the government. And then that money, of course, would be stolen. Let me play a little bit more here from Joyce Benenson. How do women compete for partners? She's a professor at Harvard. Want to hear about if you're equal, if you have others who are at your level, then it's okay. But otherwise, um, it's very, very unpleasant. And so I think there's less leeway there for girls to achieve in public with friends. And, and social media, I think, is just crushing now. But the pressure of restricting public achievement to girls is coming from girls, mostly. This doesn't appear to be men that are misogynistically keeping women down. It's their concern about what other women are going to say about them. I would say, number one, that's what it is. Now, across societies, men have definitely put down women. There's no question. I mean, men put down everyone. So, I mean, men will try to put down one another, and beneath the men are the women. Um, so, yeah, they're... That's what men do. And part of it is misogyny. And part of it is anything they can find to put down everyone, whether it's racial groups or whatever. It's like I, you know, it's my friends. Me too. Right. I've heard male friends at all ages just saying, you know, what a loser their friend is, their tennis player is, you know. There's a little bit more from Stephen Turner's memoir. As I was attracted to outsiders. I befriended and played with the first black student in my school class. My 11th birthday party was almost all black friends. But uh, by about age 14, that had changed. So the social world of black students diverged radically from the nerdy white students they shared classes with. Their world was now closed to me. What and uh, you know, I, I and it is interesting because I, I am just watching tennis matches now, and I, you know, women oftentimes will say, Oh, I'm sorry when they hit a really good shot. I mean, that. And they did find he had a much greater respect for the black Muslims rather than the more prosaic civil rights leaders. The black Muslims preach self-respect, self-discipline, self-reliance. They disdain reliance on the white man. The more prosaic civil rights leaders focused on grievances, promoted new forms of reliance on the white man, like public housing. So the prosaic civil rights leaders' active presence exacerbated racial tensions, encouraged racial violence, even when the overt message was otherwise. I experienced this many times in the forms of rocks thrown at me as I biked home, something no self-respecting black Muslim would have deigned to do. That sort of doesn't make a lot of sense. But this is just informal tennis. This isn't top tennis players. But it is true. It's this idea of, geez, here I am trying to win the game and beat you, but I'm sorry that I hit such a good shot. So that's a contradiction. And it's because, which I understand well, I mean, I do it myself. Um, you know, it's like, how do you put together these things that don't really match? I'm trying to do very well, well but, you know, I don't want you not to like me. So you want to be stop. ruled by a man who wears Ukrainian flag lapel pin and lives with Frank Luntz? No problem. We get it. 
Let us tell you how he's better than you think he is. Let us try and change your mind. Let us try to convince you. In a normal race, that's what you would do. But that is not what Kevin McCarthy's team is doing. Instead, like the left, they purport to oppose. They're using threats and fear to force people to support the candidate. Anyone who opposes Kevin McCarthy, one of his surrogates explained today, is, quote, an enemy, a, quote, terrorist. That's their message. In a moment, we'll tell you how that message is working. But first tonight, in the summer of 2016, the government transparency organization WikiLeaks released thousands of emails from the servers of the Democratic National Committee. Those documents showed conclusively that Hillary Clinton partisans had worked to rig the Democratic primary against her rival, Bernie Sanders. It was obvious from the start that that email dump had come from an internal source, probably from a DNC staffer who was offended by the corruption of the Clinton team. But of course, the Democratic Party couldn't admit that, too embarrassing, too revealing. So instead, in order to cover this wrongdoing, the Clinton campaign claimed that Russia did it. The Russians hacked the servers! Remember that? Now, you may have believed it or not, but intel agencies in this country must have known at the time that it was not true. They would know. But they said nothing. And they said nothing because blaming Russia turned out to be a very useful political tool. In fact, before long, it became the default response to every perceived disaster in Washington. Hillary lost. Why Russia? Donald Trump can't be president. Why Russia? Hunter Biden's laptop is here. Russian? Audit aid to Ukraine? Can't. Russia. And so on and so on. So over time, probably inevitably, the inflated threat of Russia became a pretext for everything bad, including censorship in this country. It's Russian disinformation. Shut it down. Thanks to new reporting from Matt Taibbi, who has spent weeks sifting through previously secret Twitter files, we know the federal government's intelligence and law enforcement agencies enthusiastically joined the effort to censor the political speech of American citizens illegally. It was a sophisticated effort. At one point, for example, the State Department released a report falsely claiming that thousands of Twitter accounts were controlled by foreign governments. Russia! And then, unnamed sources in the intel world leaked scary headlines about Russian disinformation running rampant on Twitter. Twitter deleted data potentially crucial to the Russia probes, screamed Politico, ever obedient to the intel agencies. And then the Washington Post published a piece threatening to increase regulation of Twitter's advertising because, of course, Russia. So it was a manufactured panic about Russia. But on the basis of that manufactured panic, lawmakers in Washington demanded more censorship. The issue is not that the companies before us today are taking too many posts down. The issue is that they're leaving too many dangerous posts up. In fact, they're amplifying harmful content so that it spreads like wildfire and tortures our democracy. Oh, Too much speaking. Your opinions are a threat to our, quote, democracy. That would be sitting United States Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts. But almost nobody said anything because Russia. And so it accelerated. Not long after that tape was shot, in November of 2020, Congressman Adam Schiff of California, who was then the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, demanded that Twitter censor any discussion about the House Intelligence Committee. Quote, suppress any and all search results about committee staff, a Schiff aide demanded of Twitter. Schiff was particularly furious that a journalist called Paul Sperry had reported on Schiff's connection to the CIA whistleblower behind Donald Trump's impeachment. So Schiff demanded that Twitter censor Sperry. Quote, suspend the many accounts, including Paul Sperry, commanded Schiff's office. This is illegal. 
It's openly unconstitutional. Government officials cannot suppress speech. That's the Bill of Rights. And even at Twitter, executives seem to understand that. No, this isn't feasible. We don't do this, replied one Twitter executive. But ultimately, however, they caved. In time, in fact, Paul Sperry was censored by Twitter, along with many thousands of others. Twitter had effectively become a government propaganda outlet. How that happened and the effect that it had on American electoral politics is one of the most important stories of our time. And as we said, we know about it because of Matt Taibbi, who has been at the center of it. He joins us tonight. Matt, thanks so much for coming on. So I, I would just offer thanks to our for audience me, um, your extensive reporting on this, which is on Twitter and on your Substack. But to summarize, having looked at these documents for weeks now, how deep was the penetration of Twitter by U.S. law enforcement and intel agencies? I think we can say pretty conclusively after looking at tens of thousands of emails over the course of these weeks that the government was in the censorship business in a huge way. Uh, that's, I think, provable now. Uh, and not just one agency, really every conceivable wing of the enforcement uh, agencies of the U.S. government were in some way or another sending moderation requests to Twitter and in many cases, those requests were being fulfilled. And they were coming from everywhere, from every place, from the NSA to the HHS to FBI, DHS, uh, and even what they call other government agencies, which I think is code for the CIA. So we have yes, reports from all over, from states, from police departments, everywhere. So that's prima facie illegal. It's unconstitutional. Government cannot censor political speech. It could not be clearer. Our assumption is that this was made possible because of hysteria about Russian penetration of our politics. Is that is that your read of it? Absolutely, yeah. I think the, the thread that I put out yesterday traces the history of what happened, uh, particularly in the fall of 2017. Twitter somewhat naively thought that they would not be sucked into the Russiagate phenomenon. They really thought this was going to be Facebook's problem alone. Uh, but when it started to become politically very difficult for them and people like uh, the ranking Democrat on the Senate Intel Committee, Mark Warner, the senator of Virginia, uh, put pressure on them. Uh, There's an email that talked about how he was pressuring them to, quote, keep producing material for them. Uh, ultimately, Twitter ended up caving. And by the end of the year, they had an internal guidance, which I think is very significant, where they said publicly, we will only remove content at our sole discretion privately. We will remove content, uh, any content that's identified by the United States intelligence community as a foreign state actor conducting cyber operations. So if the intel community says we take it down, uh, we're going to take it down. And, and of course, a lot of the people who were censored were not foreign state actors. In at least one case that you documented, this was a journalist. And I, and I have to ask, there are a lot of different nonprofit organizations that purport to defend free speech on behalf of journalists. I won't even bother to name them, but there are a lot of them. Have any have any of them weighed in on this and raised holy hell? No, and that's been a profound disappointment. Um, you know, for me personally, I, I gave to the ACLU for years. I'm one of those sort of dyed-in-the-wool uh, liberals and grew up that way. I'm deeply disappointed. I think a lot of people uh, who are sort of politically on that side of the aisle 
um, are missing the boat on this. They don't understand the gravity of the situation. They're thinking about this in partisan terms. It's not a partisan story. This is a story about the architecture uh, of the intelligence community and law enforcement getting its hands on speech and on the ability for of people to communicate with one another through platforms like Twitter and Facebook. And they're doing this in a very profound way, much more serious than I thought it was, uh, at the beginning of this story. And in relative terms, Twitter is a smaller player. I mean, you have Facebook and Google that, that dwarf it in size. I mean, uh, we've got to assume that those two companies are as penetrated as Twitter has been, don't we? Yes, and, and there's evidence for that. Uh, certainly, we've seen uh, that they had what they called weekly uh, or monthly industry meetings with the DHS and the FBI, uh, and those included a, a number of companies, including Facebook, in some cases Wikipedia, Pinterest. Uh, there were a whole series of companies that were included in, in these communications. Um, how deep the penetration goes in, in those other companies, I can't say, but I do know that they had very close communications. And in Twitter's case, the number of requests that, that came in was really overwhelming. Your previous guest, Michael Schellenberger, talked about how they were uh, paid $3 million by the FBI. They were underpaid. They were doing so much work for the government in terms of uh, reviewing these documents that uh, they, they should have been compensated a lot more for their work. How can it be a free society or a democracy if law enforcement and intel agencies are determining what we can say? Well, people are hiding behind the fig leaf of, well, they didn't formally ask, they didn't demand that you do it, but um, how much of an ask is it really? How voluntary is it really when the FBI or the NSA or the CIA or the DHS comes to your company and presents you with an Excel spreadsheet of thousands of names and says, we assess that these, uh, these accounts are linked to the Internet Research Agency and they're foreign threat actors. Um, I think these companies feel enormous pressure to do the moderation, and the initial work that we've done proves that they did so. Yeah. I, it, this is one of the many problems that beset American society. This is a simple one to fix. Just ban it. Government agencies are not allowed to censor speech in the United States. I, I think it's a pretty easy thing to remedy. And we wouldn't know about it were it not for your efforts. Thank you, Matt Taibbi. Thanks so much, Tucker. A lot of drama in Washington, as we alluded at the outset. The House of Representatives has just reconvened 11 minutes ago to try once again to elect a new Speaker of the House. We are monitoring that. Meanwhile, and it pains us to say this, but it is true, surrogates for Kevin McCarthy are saying out loud, if you don't support Kevin McCarthy for Speaker, you're a terrorist. We have that tape. Plus, the Canadian shop teacher with the gigantic prosthetic breasts working out his fetish in front of the kids. We have an update on that story. Of course we do. We'll be right back. Thank you, Tucker Carlson. We'll keep an eye on the Tucker, see if he's got anything else interesting to say. Meanwhile, let me get my act together, play some commentary here. Joyce Benison, Harvard professor, how do women compete for partners? And is the driver that's underneath this, I'm trying to work out why women want everybody to seem this egalitarian sort of flat landscape. I'm trying to work out what the adaptive pressure is that's caused this to be the case. Like why, why would it not be the case that men do that? And why would it be the case that women do that? 
Okay, so um, this takes us into uh, kind of my work uh, looking at primatology. So I'll give you a little bit of background on that. Um, uh, you can stop me because it, it may not be that interesting. But basically, if you look across a lot of primate species, males always are trying to be better than one another because they get more mating success. So whoever's on top gets to mate with the most females and they leave their genes and those genes are trying to get to the top. So that's what gets across primates. There, There's almost no exceptions to that. I mean, there's very many different kinds of of social organizations and, and so forth, but that's how it goes. For females, it's quite different because there's two societies that um, cause very different effects in females. In one, you live with your kin for your whole life. That's fabulous. You have coalitions. You put down others who are not your kin. You put down lower ranked members of your kinship group and you have your allies for life. You're born into your kin group. You've got your mother. You've got your aunts. You've got your grandmother. You've got your sisters and you're going to stay together for life. The males will eventually disperse at adolescence and you have this great situation where you don't have to figure out who your family is, who your friends are, because your friends are your family. There you are. Okay. But there's another group much smaller where females disperse at adolescence and the males stay or both males and females disperse but the females in either of those latter cases are not staying with their family not staying with their female kin for their whole lives they are in humans usually marrying into a husband's family in most places or the majority of places in the world at least some parts of their life women are spending their time with their husband's family and there's a lot of going back and forth in humans but in non-humans it's very very common in these groups that a female will join a male um what we call philopatric society, but basically male kin who, have, who are staying there their whole lives. Now, who are the other females that are there? Those females are not related to you. They're not individual you, individuals you grew up with. They're not your female kin. They're nobody. They're totally unfamiliar. And they also need the food and they need the mating partners and they need their offspring to be taken care of. So what happens in those societies? And what's really interesting is the research has shown very clearly that the females stay away from each other. They're much more individualistic. Maybe after many, many years, they might form a bond and stay close to one another, but they demand equality. There's not a lot of status um, altercations or fighting status accrues over time you've been there a long time you're a resident okay so you're ahead of the ones who immigrate more recently that's it but generally okay that's uh, joyce bannonson talking with uh, chris williams about how do women compete that's gonna do it for me for now i'm off to the beach i'll talk to you later bye bye <laughs>